Uh, the first time that I can remember comparing myself uh, to another was when I was a sophomore in high school. Uh, I was trying out for the tennis team. I didn't know if I had the chops. I didn't know if I had what it would take in order to make the team. And uh, you have to understand that my, my dad is the one that really taught me how to play tennis. If you knew my dad, he would uh, tell you that he does not identify as a tennis player uh, he doesn't uh, exactly have even a, a tennis physique. He would tell you that he's built more like a fullback than he is a tennis player. Needless to say, uh, I didn't know if I was any good. And so I showed up to tryouts, and I started looking around and kind of gauging the other players that were there and, and trying to figure out where I stacked up compared to everyone else. I would watch uh, someone hit a forehand and a backhand, someone serve, and I'd be like, okay, he's better than I am, and he's better than I am, and I might be able to take him if I'm lucky. And, and, I, and I had no idea if I would make the team or not. And so I was comparing uh, my game to their game. Well, as you know, as luck would have it, I actually made the team, and I did, I did fairly well. Uh, I don't, you know, I don't say this to brag, but, <laughs> but I am. I, uh, I was the number one singles player, Franklin High School, Livonia Franklin. Hold your applause. No, 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 seriously, that's not necessary. Just a little bit more, a little bit more. Okay, okay, that's enough, that's enough. And, and, and so I started comparing myself, not only to the players' games on the team, but I, I compared my game uh, to the game of the other number one singles players uh, across, across town, across our city, our county. And, uh, and what I learned was that while I was clearly the best player on our team, I was not the best player on any other team in the city. I went 0 for however many matches we played. That was the first time that I remember comparing myself. Uh, I wish it was the last, but it wasn't. Uh, later in, in high school, near the end of high school, I started talking to my friends about where they would attend university. Where are you planning on going to college? We started throwing out our GPAs. We started asking one another, what did you get on the ACT? And what did you get on the SAT? And I decided uh, very early on with those conversations that I would just listen. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't want to participate, uh, and I didn't want to participate because I realized apparently the people that I was running with were a lot smarter uh, than I was. Uh, I wish I could say that that was uh, the last time that I compared myself to someone else, but uh, apparently it was just the beginning. You know, I went off to college, and I went off to seminary, and I was surrounded by, by people who were doing what I was doing, who loved what... I loved, and so I would kind of look over my shoulder a little bit, and, and I would hear their questions in class. I would see the grades on their papers. I would listen to them uh, preach, and I would try to uh, see how I, how I measured up. Uh, I wish I could say that that was the last time that I found myself comparing myself to another, uh, but it's the craziest thing. Even, even when I went into ministry, you know, it's pretty easy to get around a group of guys who are doing the same thing as you're doing and, and asking them how things are going and, and whether it's intentional or not. People start talking about their, their churches and how long they've been around and how big their church is and how much money they bring in. And, and I just find myself going, man, how do I stack up compared to these other guys? I wish I could say that was uh, the last time I found myself comparing myself to others, but uh, even, even last week, I was exercising. This is a true story. It was, it was Wednesday, and Jeremy, the guy that owns the gym where I exercise, uh, I don't, I'll just be honest with you, I don't know if Jeremy owns any shirts. 
Uh, and, and this is going to sound strange, but I don't quite honestly think he needs to. Uh, Wednesday, apparently, they had a two-for-one deal on the workout because he was doing two reps for every rep I was doing. And I was like, man, man, Lord made that, that guy fast. You know, and I was, I, was, I was comparing myself to him, kind of seeing how I stacked up. Uh, apparently, I, I practiced intermittent comparison before intermittent fasting was a thing, you know. And it just sort of marked uh, my life. Have you ever been there before? You ever find yourself comparing uh, yourself to someone else? I'm going to be honest with you, the things that I shared this morning are pretty trivial. You know, I might even argue that in and of themselves, they're not, they're not sin. Just making observations. You know, but sometimes we compare ourselves with others in a way that's a little more sinister. We start looking over our shoulder and trying to gauge our worth or our value or our identity uh, based on gifts and abilities that another person possesses and that we don't. Um, and, and that's really the, the, the problem or the challenge with uh, comparison. You know, on some level, we compare all the time. You go to the grocery store, you, you know, you compare the prices of eggs, right? You're going, but this, this carton costs $10. This carton costs 12 Four months ago, it cost 3 That's a bummer. You're, you're comparing price. You, and we compare stuff all the time. I'm not talking about that kind of comparison this morning. Uh, I'm talking about uh, the kind of uh, comparison that uh, oftentimes can uh, lead us into dark places. Um, That kind of comparison is uh, dangerous and even deadly. You know, it's, it's interesting because on one hand, the Bible encourages us to look to the examples of others and at times to imitate the examples of others, which requires some sort of comparison. I think of Hebrews chapter 6, verse 12, be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. In order to do that, you're sort of comparing yourself to someone else, but you're doing it in such a way where you're looking at their life in order to, to breathe life into you, to encourage you, to challenge you, to be changed or to be different. You know, you look at someone who's incredibly generous and you think to yourself, man, <laughs> but he or she is really generous. That's challenging to me. I want to live that kind of life. And that's, a, that's a good thing. We want to be imitators of, of generosity. To look at someone who has a heart for service and go, man, I, like... He or she is just amazing. They, they give their time and their energy and their effort. Like, I want to I copy that. I want to I be imitators of that example. And so Scripture calls us to, to observe. Scripture calls us at times uh, to, to imitate. But that's not what I'm talking about this morning. One author put it this way, If we are not vigilant and ruthlessly pursuing humility, pride will hijack comparison. Pride wants glory for the self and sees others as necessary parts of Christ's body carrying out sacred callings, or sees others not as necessary parts of Christ's body carrying out sacred callings, but as threats to self-glory. When pride rules comparison, jealousy and selfish ambition result. I love that line. It's so challenging. Pride wants glory for the self 
and sees others not as necessary parts of Christ's body carrying out sacred callings, but as threats to self-glory. Comparison is a sin when it becomes a way for us to judge our own value and worth. It is sin when comparison is driven by the glory of self more than the glory of God. We don't just notice someone else's gifts or abilities. We notice what we don't have, and we're envious. Why? Why? Because it seems to us a little unfair. Uh, Maybe we think to ourselves that life would be better or more joy-filled or more satisfying if I was just a little bit more like he or she is. Comparison can be so common that it becomes one of the things that is accepted in the Christian life. It's just kind of one of those things where we shrug our shoulders and go, I mean, come on, like everyone does that, don't they? And yet Scripture all over the place warns us against comparison. In fact, Scripture tells us that comparison is so dangerous that comparison can actually kill. I think about the story of Saul and David that's recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 18, uh, verses 6 through 9. I don't know if you're familiar with this story, but David had defeated Goliath, and Saul, who was king at the time, and David return home, and they return home to a parade. Right? I mean, you can almost picture it in your mind's eye. The, you know, the streets are lined, like people are celebrating the victory that they had just experienced. Uh, and Scripture uh, says that, uh, that the women sang uh, to one another uh, as they came into the town and as they celebrated. And the song went a little something like this, Saul has killed his thousands. Remember this passage? I mean, if you're Saul, if you're the king... Uh, If you're walking through town and you hear those words, Saul has killed his thousands, you probably think to yourself, (laughs) that's right, I'm kind of a big deal. Uh, But unfortunately for Saul, the song didn't end there. Uh, The song went, Saul had killed his thousands and David his tens of thousands. And Scripture says, and Saul was very angry and this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Scripture says, and Saul eyed David from that day on. Right after this event, Saul tried to kill David. He threw a spear at him two times. Saul compared what the people were saying about him with what they were saying about David And envy and jealousy grew in his heart. Comparison can kill. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 12 says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers, what do you think they're fighting about? What do, you think, uh, what do you think they're arguing about with one another? This is what they're arguing about. What I mean is that, uh, that each of you say, I follow Paul. And another says, I follow Apollos. And another says, I follow Cephas. And still another says, I follow Christ. Uh, people have been comparing... Uh, even within the church, 
for thousands of years. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12 says, Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by themselves, by one another, and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding, or some translations say they are fools. Uh, to compare yourself with another, apparently, according to Paul, uh, is foolish. And so how do we respond uh, when uh, comparison kind of bubbles up in our hearts? Uh, when we find ourselves looking over our shoulders, not, not to make an observation, but, but we look over our shoulders in an unhealthy way uh, to, to try to define who we are and who we aren't. And what's interesting to me is this passage from John chapter 3, uh, John the Baptist is faced with a situation of comparison. And I think we have much to learn from the way that John responds when his disciples come to him and remind him or point out to him, hey, by the way, John, people are leaving you and they're following Jesus. That is the situation in John chapter 3. Jesus is baptizing and John is baptizing. Um, the, the text uh, tells us that they were baptizing near large amounts of water. It seems like people were being immersed. That's not the point of the text. The text isn't focusing on the mode of baptism. What's the issue? Uh, the issue is that there was a discussion that arose, according to verse 25, between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. So they're having this discussion, maybe argument over purification. And they came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. Right? So the disciples, John's disciples and a Jew are having this conversation about purification. Purification in Scripture uh, can refer to multiple different things. On one hand, purification oftentimes can refer to this idea of being clean uh, before God. It's the act of God where He makes a sinner clean, where He cleanses them uh, from their sins. I think of Hebrews chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 4. Listen to the author of Hebrews. He writes, God, after He spoke long ago, to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. He, Jesus, is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he made purification... Of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than angels as he had inherited a more excellent way uh, than they. So on one hand, when Scripture talks about purification, it can refer to the purification of sin, but also there was a, a ceremonial uh, cleansing that took place with people. There were laws and regulations that uh, the Jewish people followed uh, so that they would not be unclean and could be a part of the worship of God at the temple. Uh, some of the practices that caused a person to become ceremonially unclean included uh, childbirth or infectious diseases, um, touching a corpse, 
or contact with anyone uh, who was also unclean. What's interesting about this text, though, is it really doesn't go into uh, a lot of information or explanation about what it means to be clean or unclean. It just says that John's disciples were having this discussion, maybe debate, uh, with a Jew over uh, what does it look like to be clean. But then right after that, this is interesting uh, to me, is that John's disciples come to John and they don't ask for clarification on what it means to be clean. They say to him, Rabbi, teacher, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. This is the issue. This is the issue uh, for John the Baptist's disciples. People are leaving John and they are going to Jesus. Uh, to put it in today's terms, uh, if John were pastor, uh, they might say to him, Pastor John, the baptizer, your back door is open. And people are leaving your congregation and they're going across town. What are you going to do about it? John's disciples are envious. They're comparing John's ministry to Jesus' ministry. It's plain to them by what they see that Jesus' ministry is growing and John's ministry is not. Uh, Jesus is getting the numbers and John the Baptist is not. And that is a problem to them. But apparently, it's not a problem uh, to John the Baptist. Because notice how John the Baptist responds uh, to his disciples pointing out that too many people are leaving him. Um, I think what John does is he teaches us or he reminds us of four things that we can tell ourselves when we find ourselves comparing ourselves with others. It may not be in the context of ministry. Uh, it may be in other circumstances or scenarios in life. It may be us comparing our appearance. It may be us comparing uh, our jobs. It may be us comparing our bank accounts. Uh, but John gives us wisdom. He gives us four reminders. Look at verse 27. It says, John answered his disciples and said, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given, uh, given him from heaven. So John's first reminder is to remember that everything we have is from God and for God. When I say everything that we have, I mean everything that we have, everything. Your gifts, um, your abilities, uh, your mind, your intellect, your emotional intelligence, uh, your success, uh, your money, your health, um, everything that we have, uh, everything that we have is from God. If you have it, God gave it. If you have it, God gave it. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 10 says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Everything that we have has been given to us by God. A tall person does not boast in their height. And I don't say that because I'm short, although arguably I am. But I mean, it, it's, I mean, think about it. 
Like someone who's 6'2 or 6'3, boasting about how tall they are, it's foolish. You literally had nothing to do with it. Like that's just the way that God made you. And the same is true for anything and everything that we receive. Now, you may say to yourself, wait a second, James. There are people in the world who work harder than other people. There's athletes who train harder than other athletes. There's, There's leaders who commit to their craft and they learn and they grow and they make wise decisions. I'm not saying that that's not the case. Uh, what, what I am suggesting is that even our ability to do those things, whatever those things are, it's a gift from God. Like it's, That's what John is saying. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Right? So John's disciples point out to John, uh, hey, people are leaving your ministry And John essentially tells his disciples, it's not my ministry. Like, it's it's God's. It's not my deal. So he, he celebrates the fact, essentially, that people are leaving him and going to Jesus. John essentially goes, like, praise God. <laughs> That's actually a good thing. So when you are tempted... And you will be to compare yourself to another. Remember that everything that we have, everything that anyone has, is a gift from God. Secondly, remember who you aren't and remember who you are. Remember who you aren't and remember who you are. John was apparently secure in who he was not, and he knew who he was. He understood his purpose in life. Verse 28, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, uh, but I have been sent before him. This is where freedom comes. Uh, John acknowledges that he is not the Christ, that he is not the Savior of the world, that he's simply one who has been sent before Jesus to tell other people about Jesus. But John knew that his calling, what God had called him to do, was not to save the world. Now, maybe that sounds basic when we hear it. If I were uh, to say to you, if I were to remind myself, uh, James, Christ point, you are not the Christ. I don't know if anyone would push back and go, excuse me, yes, I am. Like, we, we would know enough not to acknowledge that or to admit it, even if functionally at times we think it. I think the problem becomes is that there are times when we function as if we are the Savior. As parents, we can struggle with this, with raising our children. Uh, we, We think our role sometimes is to pull the strings in such a way um, that our son or our daughter has the opportunities that we want them to have and goes the places where we want them to go and does the things that we want them to do. Functionally, we can act like we are their Savior and not Jesus. A spouse may see their role not as one who has been called to love their spouse, but as one who has been called to save their spouse, to fix him or to fix her, when that is not their role. 
Students can feel the pressure to make life work in such a way that one false move, one mistake, one failure, and they are fearful that they will not recover. Ministry leaders, pastors, can think that it is their role um, to know it all and to be all for all. I remember graduating from seminary and uh, moving to Michigan. I was a pastor at a church there. It was the first time, uh, really, that I was out of seminary and out on my own. And I remember unpacking uh, the, the boxes of books that I had accumulated over the years and sitting in my desk. Uh, we had kicked the librarian out of the library, Shirley. I think she's in heaven now. I'm really sorry about that. I kicked her out of the library. We moved her down the hall. I unpacked all of my books and I sat at my desk and I had this deep sense that I had no idea what I was doing. Um, and I didn't want anyone to find out because I, I thought, I thought uh, that I had been hired to be a know-it-all and a fix-it-all for all. And that's not my role. Uh, and it's not yours. We are, we are not the Savior of the world. There, there is only uh, one Savior. And John knew that, and apparently it gave him a whole bunch of freedom because he knew who he wasn't, and he knew who he was. Who was he? Well, John said, I have been sent before him. Uh, John the Baptist was a forerunner to Jesus. His, his main calling in life was simply to point other people to Jesus to tell other people about him. It's, it's one of the reasons that we say at Christ Point, we exist, our purpose, our passion is to simply point people to Jesus. This was the role of John the Baptist. I like to think that uh, John the Baptist was the Michael Buffer of his day. Do you know Michael Buffer? You know, my, a couple of you do. Michael Buffer is the guy that uh, is the announcer uh, before fights. Right? He announces the, the boxers, maybe he does the UFC thing. And uh, he, he gets paid, apparently, a whole bunch of money um, just, just to announce the fight. He's not the main attraction. Uh, he doesn't fight. He just kind of points people in the right direction. He says for the thousands in attendance and the millions watching at home. Oh, that was weak. Yeah, let's get ready to rumble. And then he, and then he won, like, mic drop, and he's done. That's all he does. Nobody ever says at the end of the fight, what would you think about the fight? Only to have someone reply, I thought Michael Buffer nailed it. Like nobody, like, <laughs> like, nobody even cares about him, really. They're like, oh, what a cool voice. And then he's done. He just introduces the thing. Like, we get to introduce the king of the world. Like, look to Jesus. And then we step back. That was John the Baptist's role. And quite honestly, I think, uh, I think that that's our role too. Not to spend life uh, in the limelight or under the bright lights, uh, but to point people to Jesus. How do we fight comparison? We remember everything that we have as a gift. We remember who we are not, and we remember who we are. Third, we remember that we are a guest and not the groom. We remember that we are a guest and not the groom. Verse 29, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, 
who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. John was saying, I'm not uh, the groom, I'm not the bridegroom. The bride isn't mine, Uh, the bride is his. Uh, But I'm the best man, and I get to go to the wedding feast and stand next to the bridegroom as he enters into the joy of this wedding. For John, that was an unspeakable privilege. Like, what, what a cool thing to get an invite to the wedding. What a cool thing uh, to, be, to be seen as, uh, as the best man of sorts. What a great opportunity. What, a, what an incredible What an incredible privilege. Uh, But John the Baptist knew that while he was attending uh, the wedding, uh, he was not the star of the show. It wasn't his deal. Uh, Oftentimes, the nature of comparison is that comparison is self-focused. When we compare, we think about ourselves. I'm comparing myself to someone else. I'm comparing my situation in life or my lot in life or my place in life uh, to someone else. And when I do that, I have a tendency to think more about me uh, than anyone else. I become self-absorbed. I remember a month or two ago, I was watching a University of Michigan basketball game because, I mean who wouldn't be watching a University of Michigan basketball game. And it was a close game. Michigan had the ball. They had an opportunity to take the last shot and to win the game. It was a regular season game. You know, it didn't have seemingly great importance at the time. But I was watching it with my oldest son, Cademan. And Michigan had called the timeout. There was just a couple seconds left. They draw up this play. And uh, Michigan has one or two players, some might argue star players, who in that situation should probably take the last shot. Like, who takes the last shot in the game? Like, your, your star player takes the last shot. Well, Michigan comes out of the timeout, they inbound the ball, they make one, they make two, they make three passes, and a bench player, a bench player, not a starter, hoist up the last shot of the game. And when he shot the ball, before we knew if it was going to go in or not, Cademan shouted, you are not him. (laughs) And apparently he wasn't because he missed the shot. Like Cademan was going, you're not the guy. There's another guy, but you're not him. If we saw John the Baptist at the wedding, we could say, you're not him. And John the Baptist would say, you are absolutely right. Because John the Baptist knew who he wasn't, he knew who he was, and he knew he was at uh, the wedding as a guest uh, and not the groom. When John the Baptist grasped this truth, it brought him immense joy. It's almost as if John the Baptist was living out what C.S. Lewis called blessed self-forgetfulness. Blessed self-forgetfulness, according to Lewis, is not thinking of yourself more highly than than you ought, or also not uh, thinking too lowly of yourself, but not thinking of yourself at all. 
Lewis talked about self-forgetfulness as this, the ability to admire something other than ourselves um, with cheerful innocence and without guile. To love and admire anything outside yourself is to take one step away from utter spiritual ruin. We might admire a sunset, or we might admire a symphony, or even a novel, or in John's case, uh, we might admire the Savior of the world. Uh, And when we do, I mean, when we see Him, when we see Jesus, we experience um, the joy of self-forgetfulness. The temptation sometimes in comparison is to think to ourselves, if only, if only I was him or if only I was her, if only I had that, if only I could do that. And our fear is that if, if we don't experience what someone else is experiencing or if we don't have what someone else has, that somehow we will be missing out, that we will not experience joy. But in John's case, uh, John the Baptist says just the opposite will happen. Just the opposite. To the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him, he rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. And I love those words from John. John has the ability for a moment, maybe for longer, uh, to forget about himself and to bask in the beauty of Jesus. And when he does, he says, therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Don't you long for that kind of joy? Don't Don't you long to forget about self? To not think you have to constantly compare yourself with someone else, to look over your shoulder, to look in the mirror, to look at your bank account, to look at your retirement plan, to forget about yourself and to see your Savior. How do we fight comparison? Number one, we remember everything we have as a gift. Number two, we remember who we are not and who we are. And number three, we remember that we're the guest and we are not the groom. Lastly, Uh, When we live this sort of a way or when we remember these things, we start pursuing a life that truly believes and pursues uh, where where Jesus uh, must increase and I or we must decrease. We are more concerned with the fame of Jesus uh, than we are our own reputation or glory. He must increase John writes, but I must decrease. Or some translations say, he must become greater and I must become less. This was uh, God's design for John the Baptist. John the Baptist pointed other people to Jesus, and it is no different for us. Oftentimes in life, we want to hold a position or we're consumed with recognition or we're tempted to remind people of our importance or our accomplishments or we advertise our capabilities. When we are self-focused instead of Christ-focused, we will miss out on the joy that could be ours. And so I I read this, admittedly, this this passage, this verse, and I go, okay, well, what is, I mean, what does that mean? You've probably heard that before. It's, It's fairly common. If you grew up in the church, maybe you've heard that verse before. He must increase, but I must decrease. But what does that 
I mean, what does that mean? What does that mean? I, I've been thinking about that this week. James, what does it look like to live a life where you live in such a way where the glory of God increases and you're not so self-focused or self-absorbed? And I found myself asking questions. This is what, this is what sometimes I do is I start asking myself uh, what to me are thought-provoking questions. Maybe they're not thought-provoking questions to you, but this is, this is what I was thinking about this week. I was just asking myself, James, do you uh, experience joy uh, when the spotlight is fixed on another, uh, even if it means you live in the shadows? I thought about this uh, in a conversation with a friend one time. I have a, a friend who was a pastor, and he was on sabbatical for like three months or something. His church gave him a sabbatical. And I remember asking him, hey, how did it go? Like, how did things at the church go when you were gone? He said, we grew 25%. Man, I love it. You know, that's, that's what God does, right? You start to think like, hey, I'm sort of the glue holding this thing together. And the Lord goes, you can go away for a little while. I'll be okay. Do you experience joy when the spotlight is fixed on another, even if it means that you spend some time in the shadows? Number two, I ask my question, is it necessary that I receive credit for something that I've done? Or is it okay if someone else gets the credit, maybe even for something that I've done? Like, am I okay with that? Uh, This morning, uh, my oldest son... And a few of his uh, Spanish-speaking friends uh, from the Spanish class at school left uh, and flew out of the country. And yesterday he was working, and before he left, I said, hey, like, is there anything that you need to take with you? Do you need snacks? Is there anything that you don't have that you need? And so he gave me a list of four or five things. And so I went to the store and picked up the groceries, and I came back home. And last night I was, I was sitting at the table, and... Uh, and he had come in, and he had noticed that, uh, that some shopping had been done. And so he did what any 18-year-old boy in his shoes would, would do. He said, Mom, thanks so much for picking up the groceries. And I'm, I'm, I'm sitting in the room next door. I'm sitting in our formal dining room. They're talking in the kitchen. You know, my, you know what my first response was when I heard that? Like, I'm talking about, like, inside my first response is like, it, it, it was this guy. It was this I. I did it. And Melissa was quick. I mean, Melissa, like in a heartbeat, because she's more mature than I am, was like, I, Dad got the groceries. But I was thinking to myself, why does that even matter? I mean, seriously. Like, why does it matter? If, if, someone, if someone else gets the credit, like, are you cool with that? Even if you did it. Uh, number three, am I okay if I don't uh, have the last word? Am I okay if I don't have the last word? Or, in my case, the first word or any word in the middle? Like, is it, is it just, am I okay if I'm not heard, 
Like, am I all right with it? Do, do, I have, do I feel like I have to kind of button up every conversation, speak the last word, be the first one to chime in, make, make sure that my voice is heard in a conversation? Or can, can I just sort of gladly step away and be okay with it? Do you experience joy when the spotlight is fixed on another, even if it means you find yourself in the shadows? Is it necessary that you, that I, receive credit for something that I've done, or is it okay if someone else uh, gets the credit? Am I okay if I don't have to have the last word, the first word, or any word? Am I content with my voice not being heard? What does it look like uh, for, for Jesus, for God to increase and for me to decrease. I think in part, for me, in small ways, I mean, these are there's things that I'm working on, that God's working on me, where he's going, um, James, we, we need a little less of you. And we're going to be okay. When faced with comparison, it's important that we remember everything that we have is from God. It's important that we remember who we are not and who we are. It's important to remember that we are a guest and not the groom. It is important to remember uh, that in life, he must increase, God must increase, Jesus must increase, and we must decrease. Uh, what John does in his response to his disciples is so beneficial for us as we kill comparison in our hearts and in our lives. But it should be pointed out, despite the fact that I just shared those things, that what John is doing is not simply giving a master class in killing comparison. Instead, John the Baptist is doing what John the Baptist had always done. John the Baptist is simply pointing people to Jesus. Uh, he is telling his disciples about a gracious God who is the giver of all good things. Uh, he is telling his uh, disciples and reminding them that there is one Savior of the world, and it's not them, and it's not him. He was sharing with his disciples that although we get invited uh, to the party, we're not the point of the party. Uh, he was reminding them that the result of this way of life is a life of true and lasting joy. And he was calling them to live a life that shines a spotlight on the only one who truly deserves it. And that is Jesus. And so may God set us, you and me, uh, free uh, from comparison and cause us uh, to fix our eyes on the one true Savior of the world, Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father God, thank you so much for your living and active word. Thank you that you've given it uh, to us to mold and shape us. You want us uh, to be changed. You want us to be different. You want us to reflect uh, your son, Jesus. And we can't do that in our own strength. We can't determine to finally get our acts together, to try harder, to do more, uh, to be a little more committed and a little more disciplined. Um, that does not get us to where you want us to go. It results in pride because we think we've done it and that we've arrived, or it results in despondency because we realize that in our own strength, uh, we can't be perfect. 
And so thank you for Jesus, who was the only perfect one, uh, who has given to us his spirit to mold and shape us and to cause us uh, to be the people that you've called us to be. God, would you give us an affection for you? Uh, Would you uh, cause us to live lives that bring glory uh, to the only one who deserves it? Uh, And that is you. God, we love you. We thank you so much for loving us first. We pray these things in Jesus' name and by your spirit. Amen.